Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. One might say that the science of nutrition doesn't feel much like a science at all. For the last half century, dietary fat, not sugar, has been blamed for everything from obesity to diabetes. It turns out that one man, Gary Taubes, has stood up against the scientific community to make the case that sugar, not fat, is in fact the culprit in our increasingly diabetic world. 
Sugar is always at the scene of the crime on a population-wide level. So companies like Coca-Cola have done their best to get Coca-Cola to every last outpost in the world. And I'm arguing that by doing so, they've managed to bring diabetes to every last outpost in the world. But before I chat with Gary, I have Morhof Humsey here with us at Milk Street. Humsey ran a thriving bakery in Hamas, Syria for 20 years with his wife and children. In 2016, he and his wife fled the country and relocated to Brooklyn. Unhappy with the quality of baklava offered in New York, the couple started the small bakery out of their apartment, and it's called Syrian Sweet Refuge. Let me start with this question. What was the bakery like in Hamam? Describe the bakery, if you would. The pastry shop made a lot of baklava. We made a lot of cakes. We sold a lot of macadamia nuts, a different variety of local sweets. So you came here in 2016, and at some point you went to a bakery and had some baklava. I, I would assume it didn't taste anything like what you're used to. What was wrong with the baklava that we make here compared to what you were used to? Honey. The problem with baklava here is that it's way too sweet. Whenever you bite into it, you feel like you're just biting into a whole lot of sugar. It tastes almost solely like syrup. Back in Syria, our recipe is a traditional recipe. We've been making these these baklava the same way for the past 60 years. Um, you were having trouble getting ingredients, flour and butter. You had to buy from the black market. They were rifle shots, bullet shots through the windows. Just describe what was going on at the time. When the war broke out in Syria, our business started to die down. We were having a lot of trouble securing materials, and at some point we had to resort to the black market. Our way to access materials was through the government's thugs. And so how did you make the decision to leave? Because... You have generations of family in Syria. Uh, it must have been very difficult to decide to leave. Well, eventually when the crisis got really tough, eventually we lost access to power, we lost access to essential materials, and our house was shot a number of times. We had a lot of bullets in our home, and we decided that it was unsustainable and it was time to leave. So there are different kinds of baklava, of course, and I know you sell a number of different kinds. Could you just explain the, the different types that, that you make and sell? Some of the baklava that we make is with pistachio. Some of it that we make is with walnuts. And the other baklava that we make is also um, using a crust from the milk. What we do is that we boil the milk and we let it sit for overnight and shave off the crust that comes from that boiled milk. And we use it as an ingredient in the baklava as well. So you run the business with your wife, and you, and you are cooking in an apartment now? I mean, you're actually doing this all in an apartment with a regular small stove? Uh, that must be, I mean, coming, as you said, from a large bakery with very professional modern equipment. How, how do you manage to cook in such a small space? 
Yeah, it was definitely a different experience cooking here. We used to have a very large stove back in Syria, and we would like to open our own store here, but we're waiting for our son to get here from Abu Dhabi. Could you tell me about your family? You have, I think you have one son already in the States, right? How many children do you have, and where are they? Four. Four sons. Two Abu Dhabi, two New York. So will it be a family business someday? Did they ever help you in the bakery in Syria? Only one of them used to help me out, and he's currently in Abu Dhabi. The others don't really work in the bakery. How is your baklava very different than what you've tasted here? The baklava that's made in New York is not real baklava. People here who make it don't have experience. People are just freestyling and they're just like messing up the recipe however they feel like messing it up. <laughs> I love it. Good for you. <laughs> Let them have it. So, so besides being too sweet, what else is wrong with it? What else? People should not mix the f- that fine flour with the nuts the way that they do. Because you bite into it and it doesn't really taste the way that it should. It just tastes wrong. <laughs> you should come over to my place and eat what real baklava should taste like. Uh, I've ordered your baklava and uh, I'll be getting it Monday and I, I can't wait to taste it. Well, he's excited to know what you think of it. <laughs> Thank you very, very much and, and really all the best with the bakery. Thank you, Armad. Thank you. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. If you're just tuning in, all of our shows are available on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and also on Spotify. Now it's time to take some questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. She's star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television, also author of the book Home Cooking 101. Sarah, are you ready? I am so ready. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? Hi, this is Michelle. Hi, Michelle. Where are you calling from? Brooksville, Florida. Okay. Well, how can we help you? Yes, thank you for taking my question. Is there a rule of thumb when it comes to using roux or slurries? Well, as you know, roux you have to start with. Although, actually, you can throw them in in the end, but generally, if I'm going to make a dish and I want it to have a rich sort of buttery taste, I'll start with a roux. When I generally use slurries, and by the way, we should define what a slurry is. It's a mixture of water and a starch. It could either be flour, it could be cornstarch, it could be arrowroot, it could be potato starch. There's many, many options, and they all give you slightly different results. I generally add that if I made something and I thought, you know, I wish I could have thickened it a little bit. I'm going to do it now. And most of those, the arrow, the cornstarch, the potato starch, don't give you such a starchy taste as flour do not need to be cooked out like flour does. So that's when I would do it, is if I'm finishing something and it's not thick enough, or I just decided that maybe I wanted to thicken it, and I you know, hadn't started with the roux and I didn't want as rich a taste. Chris, what do you think? The roux, flour is much more stable. Well, this is thickener. true. This is true. Um, in like doing pastry cream and stuff, flour is very stable. So... A roux is a very stable thing. Cornstarch and other things at the end tend to break more easily. And if they're reheated, you have more problems. So the roux is a more stable because flour has things in it other than starch, has proteins. Yeah, that too. And also, I mean, you need um, less of all those other starches than you do of flour. And you get different results. So flour, it's going to be opaque. And cornstarch, it's going to be translucent. And arrowroot, it's going to be clear. 
so they all give you a slightly different look. But there are also other ways of thickening things, like, you know, you puree some of the vegetables in a soup or some of the beans. There are other ways of using which, the natural which ingredients. Which I actually yeah. prefer. If yeah. I can plan that, what's nice about that is it sort of gives you texture and flavor at the same time. So, yes, okay. that's a good way Great. to go, too. Yeah. There you okay. go. Well, thank you so much. I Our pleasure. It. Thanks for calling. Okay. okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, Ellen Jansen. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Good. Do you have a question for us? I do. I've noticed a lot of recipes that call for mint never mention the type of mint. And I know there's a big profile difference between spearmint and peppermint. And I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on which to use in which situations. Great question. Uh, there's actually dozens of kinds of mint. There are. There's pineapple mint and chocolate mint. and it's Chocolate mint? Yes. Is that a candy or is that a mint? No, it's a mint, and oh. it tastes like chocolate. It's just that normally the two that are most common are peppermint They're very and different. spearmint. Yeah, yeah it, and it, they are very different. Spearmint is the one you want. It doesn't have menthol. It's, it goes better in savory cooking, and that's the one that's used most of the time when you call for mint. So I would look for spearmint or gross spearmint, but not okay, great. peppermint you know, what is I've a What I've done myself is when I make like ice cream, mint ice cream, I always use the peppermint, but I tend to use the spearmint when right. I'm using... You know, more of a savory right. dish. Exactly yeah. right. You know how I finally remembered what's the difference between the two is that word pepper. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so it just helps me to remember that it's just a little too spicy for some but things. But it does sound like savory when you think of pepper. Yes, you would think the exact reverse of what we all just agreed on. And, right. now, and now you've confused Sarah, so she's going to never get it right again. No, 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 no. I, I, I've got <laughs> it quite savory. straight. Quite straight, yes. Well, it sounds like you knew the answer to the question. That's well, the right answer. that was my determination just from things I tried, but I wanted to see if maybe you expert guys and women had a real definite idea of which to use when. So The only other thing I found growing men is that it takes over the entire oh, yeah. garden in about two it's minutes. It's like zucchini and rabbits. Yeah. Oh, geez. Well, I always have mine in pots because of that oh, way, you know, smart. it's contained. Very oh, smart. Right. What's wrong with rabbits? You can cook them with spearmint. There yeah, you go. It's a twofer. This is true. And with yeah. zucchini. There you go. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Alan. We really appreciate okay. the call. Sure. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. If you have a pressing culinary question, give us a ring. The number is one 855 That's 855-426-9843. You can also email us anytime at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Hi, this is Ilana. Hi, Ilana. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Whiting, Maine. Maine. Love Maine. I don't know where Whiting is, though. We're right near the Canadian border, all the way down the coast. Okay. Wow. So um, I milk and I care for a herd of dairy goats, and I would love to incorporate some of their goat's milk into homemade chocolates that I make. I make chocolate from scratch from cocoa butter, cocoa powder, and honey. Do you have a good technique to adding milk or liquid to chocolate without it seizing up? That's always a problem. Well, I think chocolate's made with a milk powder, right? Milk chocolate. It's made with a milk powder. Not with milk, probably. That is part of the problem because chocolate has a problem with liquid. You can make hot cocoa with (laughs) goat's milk and chocolate and sugar. But I think if you want to make chocolate, first of all, making chocolate is actually very hard because you need a lot of machinery to do it well, and you need to heat it just to the right temperature and everything else. But I I think they use a milk powder to do that, would be my guess. Yeah, I know commercially they use milk powder. I just didn't know if there was any way I could use my goat's milk. I don't think so. I don't think so, if you want the right texture. 
But you're so resourceful. You've already figured out how to make chocolate. I imagine you can figure out how to dehydrate your goat's milk. Yeah, I'll, I'll but, look into but, that. But goat's milk and regular cow's milk are different amount of fat. Yeah. And, and the chemistry is different. So you'd have to go figure that out too. We did a recipe a few months ago for a, um, a sauce for pasta using fresh goat cheese. And it behaved very differently than a cow's milk cheese. Yeah, the, the chemistry is different. So I'm not quite sure how that affects making chocolate. But you ought to talk to a food scientist about that. Okay, sounds good. Thank All right. you. Thanks. All right. Bye. 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 You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. After the break, I speak with journalist Gary Taubes. He's author of The Case Against Sugar. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, Man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie. Capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just <sighs> like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. 
A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just wanted to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Scientist turned journalist Gary Taubes is the author of a number of controversial nutrition books, including his latest, which is The Case Against Sugar. Taubes is known for his hard-hitting investigative nutrition stories, and his most recent claim is that sugar, not fat, is in fact the primary cause of both the obesity and diabetes epidemics here in America. Um, Let's do some numbers. So your book has lots of numbers. Uh, 1924, New York City versus 1900, a 400% increase in uh, diabetes, a 1,500% increase since the Civil War. Uh, 2012, the CDC, Center for Disease Control, reported 12 to 14% of adults have diabetes and an 800% increase from 1960 to the present day. So the context for this book, The Case Against Sugar, is the ill effect of sugar on our health, right? Very much so. And uh, as you note, I'm focusing in on the diabetes uh, as opposed to obesity, which is a little more uh, confusing. Diabetes is an easier case to make because you go back in history and you find that it was an exceedingly rare disease in the medical records in the 19th century. And then you see this steady rise uh, in the literature and the physicians discussing it in the hospital records themselves, beginning right around the Civil War and then increasing and increasing to this, you know, it was recently this 800% increase or 700% since 1960. And you see these same kinds of epidemic increases in effectively every population in the world when they transition from whatever their native diet is to uh, Western diet, uh, urban diet and lifestyle. And then the question is, what is it about our diets and lifestyles that are causing diabetes? And there's a conventional answer, which is we just eat too much and exercise too little and we get too fat and uh, it's the obesity that causes the diabetes. And then there's the sort of what had been the prime suspect as far back as the 19th century, which is the sugar consumption. Could you explain carbohydrates and sugars? Okay. So sugar is a carbohydrate, and in fact, all carbohydrates are, we refer to them as sugars. So any these words, it ends in O-S-E, like glucose, fructose, sucrose, 
they're all sugars, they're all simple carbohydrates. When uh, the, the carbohydrates and starches and grains are digested and broken down into glucose in your gut and they get into your bloodstream as glucose and glucose is literally blood sugar. The fructose goes directly to your liver for the most part and then is metabolized primarily in your liver. So it's metabolized by an entirely different organ. And so, so let, let so, me stop let me just stop you. So you're saying if I consume a tablespoon of white granulated sugar and I consume a potato, the chemistry in the body is different. Yes, precisely. And it's because of that fructose component. Okay, let, let's, let's talk for a minute about the next phase, which fats became, obesity and fats became the bad guy when it comes to diabetes. And your claim is that actually, finally, sugar is getting its due at the center of the bullseye of the problem. So just quickly, how do we get to the notion that fat was the problem? Well, there's two kind of pillars of nutritional wisdom on which all our other thinking on nutrition, obesity, diabetes is built. The first one is this idea that the only way that foods influence our health, our fat mass, is through their caloric content. And this is an idea that came out in the late 19th century when all nutritionists could do was measure the energy content in foods. And so the idea by the 1920s is that obesity causes type 2 diabetes and obesity is caused by consuming too many calories. And then in the 1950s and 60s, as the nutrition cardiology community starts asking this question, why is heart disease so prevalent? in the United States, and why are so many of us likely to die of heart disease? They look for a nutritional cause of this. What separates the American diet from diets elsewhere in the world where heart disease doesn't seem to be as prevalent? And the answer they come to is the fat content of the diet. And by the 1970s, we're blaming dietary fat and saturated fat as a sort of primary evil in the diet. And sugar is getting this sort of unintended pass uh, as a kind of benignly harmless nutrient. And by the 1980s, um, as the government really gets involved and the Centers for Disease Control starts pushing industry to come up with low-fat products, the way that you make a palatable low-fat product, once you take the fat out, you've got something that's pretty tasteless. And so you replace the fat with... With sugar. Yeah. How is it possible that with so much uh, sophisticated science and so many smart people, we end up doing the exact wrong thing for a generation or more? What's wrong with our our medical science and how we how we figure out what the problem is? Well, that's a, uh, in one sentence or less. How do you answer yeah, that? really. Um, the problem is, and good scientists know this that. All your observations about the universe, remember I started by talking about how we try to explain what we observe, well, the technology you have available tells you what you could observe. And if you get new technology, you're going to be able to observe right. new things. So you don't want to get locked into a hypothesis that's technology dependent. In nutrition research, they did. So you, your book talks about sugar as an addiction, and you, you quote Oscar Wilde about tobacco, quote, the perfect pleasure 
it's exquisite and it leaves one unsatisfied. What more can you want? So is it an addiction uh, or is it just something hard to stop eating, <laughs> which is maybe different? So the precious little uh, re really good research done on this. Um, Charles Mann is a wonderful journalist, historian, and he says, today scientists debate amongst themselves whether sugar is an addictive substance or people just act like it is. And I think that's about the best thing you could say. We certainly act like it is. And I'm the parent of two pre-adolescent boys. And I, if you're a parent, you do not need a lot of sophisticated uh, scientific research to tell you whether or not sugar has some kind of hold over your children that no other food substance does. But, but, but can we resolve once and for all the great parental debate? Um, I say if you give your kids sugar they become hyperactive. And, and other people say this absolutely not true. There's no evidence for that whatsoever. Did you get to the bottom of that in the book? Um, well, yes and no. So <laughs> I agree with you because I'm a parent, right? Nonetheless, in the 1980s, there were a series of studies done testing this idea that sugar consumption causes hyperactivity or tantrums or mood swings. And they were pretty well done studies. So what they did was they would give kids, you know, during the school day, either sugar-sweetened beverage or an artificially sweetened beverage, and the kids wouldn't know which one they were getting, and they would send the kids home. And then the parents would record whether or not the kids had a tantrum or acting, you know, acting out or being hyperactive. And invariably, the studies, the, the kids were not acting out, for lack of a better word, any more on sugar than they did on artificially sweetened beverages. I don't, I, I, now, I think we should throw those studies out because you and I know better. So, <laughs> well, this is, I didn't mention hyperactivity in the book because those, those studies are pretty well designed. Your next book should be entitled Despite the Evidence. I think that would, that would be a great book. Um, tobacco industry, you said, this, this was fascinating, that uh, sugar sells tobacco, and you say that flu-cured tobacco is up to 22% sugar, and that there's a type of tobacco, burly tobacco, that absorbs sugar easily. And so they marinate, or at least they used to, the tobacco leaves in essentially a quote-unquote sugar sauce. In 1929, you wrote, they use 50 million pounds of sugar to sweeten their cigarettes using burly tobacco. I didn't realize sugar was essential to the tobacco industry. There's a Sugar Industry Association report in the early 1950s talking about what they call the marriage of sugar and tobacco. So this was before the 1964 Surgeon General's report implicating smoking and lung cancer, and the sugar industry was worried about how they would survive if people started thinking sugar was fattening and stopped consuming so much of it, and so they were jumped on this idea that they could sell a lot of sugar to the tobacco industry. And by 1920, Camel is the most popular cigarette in America. By 1930, every cigarette sold in America is this blended tobacco. This is a story that was sort of secondary to what I'm telling in the book, which is about diabetes, obesity, heart disease. But if I had to defend the claim that sugar has killed more people than tobacco, if I, sugar gets credit for the tobacco deaths too, it makes it a lot easier to defend that claim. So this is a complicated story, and so now you have to do your summation in front of the jury uh, against the sugar industry. And so how would you summarize the case against sugar? Okay, so 
what's the crime that's being adjudicated here? And the crime is epidemics of obesity and diabetes that occur in effectively every population in the world when they transition from whatever their traditional diet is to a Western diet and lifestyle. Sugar is always at the scene of the crime on a population-wide level. So a fundamental aspect of this transition to the Western lifestyle is sugar consumption increases, sugary beverage consumption increases. Companies like Coca-Cola have done their best to get Coca-Cola to every last outpost in the world. And I'm arguing that by doing so, they've managed to bring diabetes to every last outpost in the world. And so not only is sugar at the scene of the crime on a population-wide level, it's at the scene of the crime in the human body. It's got the gun necessary to commit the crime. We don't have a smoking gun. So I don't think I can get a conviction, but I think I could convince the jury to go home and cut way back on their sugar consumption. That was Gary Tobbs. He's author of The Case Against Sugar. You know, I'm beginning to think that when it comes to nutrition, they really shouldn't call it science. Back in the 19th century, sugar got really cheap thanks to the Industrial Revolution and the advent of sugar beets. And by the mid-half of the 20th century, sugar was everywhere, including on our frosted breakfast cereals. Of course, we ended up getting fatter, we got more diabetic, and so we blamed excess calories and saturated fats. But of course, nobody had looked really hard at the science. You know, science is a science, it's fact, not opinion. And when it comes to the billion-dollar food industry, it seems to me that facts are often in short supply. Right now, I'm headed into the kitchen at Milk Street to speak with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe. Lynn, how are you? Good, Chris. Are you ready for a story? Always ready for your Lynn stories. Lynn always likes my stories. This is a story about a trip I took to Thailand, Chiang Mai, which is in the northern part of the country a few months ago. And the highlight of that trip was a visit to a grilled chicken joint. And by joint, I mean joint. It was about a 15-foot-long brazier. It was almost right on the sidewalk, a lot of smoke. Uh, And they had spatchcock chickens, and they did about 15 of them at a time. Well, I was there with Andy Ricker of Pock Pock Restaurants here in this country. He's a house just outside of town. And we sat down and had this chicken, and it had this amazing marinade. Uh, It had a lot of flavor. And it was served with a tamarind dipping sauce. Uh, this is 10 in the morning, and I ate the whole thing, plus some papaya salad and other stuff. So I came back to Mill Street, and uh, we developed a copycat recipe, if you will. So how did we do it? So we started with the chicken. You had it whole, spatchcocked. We chose to do parts, um, so two chicken leg quarters, two breasts. You can buy those that way in the supermarket or take a whole chicken and break it down. If you do it that way, you're going to end up with pieces that are slightly more even in size. For the marinade, it's more of a paste in our version, and that stays on while you're cooking, so you get a little bit more flavor in the end. It's not a loose, watery marinade. Which, by by the way, we found that marinades don't actually penetrate food very well. But right. this, as you said, this paste stays on the outside, so you get a lot of flavor. Exactly. And this marinade paste has a lot of really bold flavors in it. It has fish sauce and soy sauce, which are those salty ingredients that are going to actually penetrate the chicken. It has cilantro, sugar, garlic, coriander, a couple of different peppers, and lemongrass. 
and lemongrass, we tried it with and without in the kitchen, and we really liked it better with the lemongrass. So if you can find that, we really recommend using that. It has a little bit of a citrusy flavor to it um, and makes a huge difference in the dish. And if, it also proves you can teach an old dog new tricks. Because three or four years ago, if someone put lemongrass in a recipe, I would go crazy. But, <laughs> you would have said we did But without the lemongrass, it. it's just you can really taste the lemongrass. So if you can get it, it's good. If you can't find it fresh... They do actually sell it in a paste form in the supermarket. There's a section in the supermarket where they have tubes of herbs, and they have lemongrass paste in there. You can substitute lemongrass well, Can I get the paste. chicken in a paste, too? Sure. It's all paste <laughs> it's recipe. It's all paste recipe. So the chicken will cook in the oven, or you can do it on the grill. This is a great summer grilling recipe. It's so different than most grilled chicken recipes that you've probably had. It has so much flavor. If you do it inside, uh, in the oven, you want to put it on a sheet tray uh, on a rack over a bed of salt. And that's so that that if that paste drips down, it doesn't burn on the sheet tray. On the grill, you want to do a two-level fire. So there was this great tamarind uh, dipping sauce that went with the chicken. How did we do with that? So we tried to recreate it. You had some very uh, strong opinions about us getting it to the perfect replication. How unusual. (laughs) I think we've achieved it. It does call for tamarind paste, which is a little bit hard to find. Um, You can order it online or you can find it in an Asian supermarket if you have one in your city or town. But we also came up with a simpler sauce, a chili lime dipping sauce. It has four ingredients, just fish sauce, brown sugar, chili garlic sauce, and lime juice. Literally mix it together. It takes maybe a minute. You know what's interesting was I almost like this one better. I did it's, too. it's cleaner and brighter. It's very good. So uh, instead of traveling 18 hours to get to northern Thailand from uh, New York and China, uh, you can have Chiang Mai chicken at home. I think it's every bit as good. And we have two dipping sauces instead of one. Great job. Thanks, Lynn. Thanks, Chris. You can find our recipe for Chiang Mai chicken at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. After the break, more of your pressing culinary questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first. And that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Now it's time to take some calls uh, with my uh, learned co-host, Sarah Moulton. You're so nice. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Laura. How are you? Where are you calling from? I'm good, thank you. I'm calling from Austin, Texas. How can we help you? I find that a lot of uh, recipes call for using oil in chocolate cake. In my experience, sometimes, depending on the oil, it has kind of like a bitter flavor. And looking online, I found that a lot of people switch then use butter, and obviously the flavor in butter is better. But I was wondering why oil is used, and following up on that, if it's okay to just swap it with butter one-to-one. Or... Well, so back in the 20s, there was a guy in L.A. who had a recipe for chiffon cakes, and he in their recipes half a cup of oil, and that makes it incredibly tender and moist. Um, and, uh-huh. and carrot cake, as you know, uses vegetable oil, not butter. Right. So oil, since it doesn't have water, among other reasons, will deliver a moisture cake in general. So, yeah, oil does deliver a moisture cake. doesn't have the flavor of butter. But butter is not going to give you that same sort of moist texture, and that's probably why. Well, I have a question okay. for you. What kind of oil are you using that it comes out bitter? Old oil. Um, I was using canola oil. Um, I started using the three-blend oil from Crisco that I actually like because that, that one doesn't have that flavor. But what if the oil was old? Rancid. Yeah, oil, mm-hmm. oil gets nasty it can pretty oxidize. quickly. And if you just sniff it, it shouldn't have any of those odors. Yeah, I mean, okay. I, I'm just wondering if it's been rancid, but I, I'm not a big fan of canola oil myself. I, I think it's sort of fishy tasting. So Yes. The cake smells fishy, yes. and it doesn't taste fishy, but it's hmm. the scent that, yeah, you know, when you which, cut the cake, yeah. so, it, you know. <laughs> so I would get a more neutral. I like grapeseed. I'd get a more neutral oil. Okay. But make sure it's fresh because it does go bad pretty quickly. Right. Okay. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much. It Thanks was an calling. honor. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. Us too. Thanks for calling. Bye. Hello. Who do we have on the line? This is Kathy from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Oh, yes. I went to University of Michigan, married a Detroit boy. So how can we help you? Originally, I called in to ask. I had been having trouble 
buying garlic and finding that it was sprouting, kind of. And then I heard someone on Milk Street Radio asking the same question, and you told them it was old garlic that was doing this. My question is, how old garlic would it be before it starts the sprouting process? And am I doing the right thing to cut it in half and throwing away the green stems? And what garlic can I grow in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan and I think it's Area 3 as far as the seed catalog. Well, first of all, it's old. Secondly, where, where are you buying your garlic? A supermarket? Yes. I would go grab a bulb of sprouted garlic and go to the produce person <laughs> and put it right under their nose and say, maybe you should start selling fresh garlic. Yeah, it's just old, and life's too short to remove the sprouts. There's a big argument on whether they're bitter. My feeling is you'll never know the difference in almost any dish. You'll never taste it, so I wouldn't bother with it, but it's just old. I like hardneck garlic, actually. I find the bulbs come out cleaner. Uh, you, you want really hard garlic. When you get that stuff that's a little soft, there's sprouts, it's just old. The reason that old garlic is a problem is because it's so much stronger. Yeah. It's just really intense. So if all you can get is the older garlic, mm-hmm. remove the sprout or don't remove the sprout, I would just use less garlic in the recipe. But I agree with Chris, getting fresh garlic would be a far greater goal. Do you have farmer's markets near you? Yes, but you can't really depend on that. A lot of times our farmer's market leans rather heavily to candles. and <laughs> Yeah, I know oil. the type. Honey, maple <laughs> syrup. Yeah, I get yeah. it. And little wooden toys. Yeah. Yes. Can I make a radical suggestion? If you can't get good garlic, don't use garlic. I oh, mean, come on. Life no. without garlic is There's onions and like shallots. life without shallots. sunshine. No. Yes. No. G- bad garlic. No. I'm sorry. Just use a little. Sarah. That's no. all. Yeah. No. no. Or grow your own. Could you, could you grow your own? It's not hard. Well, that, I don't think that, it's hard to grow that garlic. That's part of my question. Is there an Area 3 garlic? I'm sure there is. I'm not a gardener, so, you know, I'm saying I'm sure there is based well, on no, absolutely nothing. My guess is you could probably find uh, Area 3. You I'm know, but, sure. I'm sorry. And it, fresh garlic is so good. Okay. We've grown some in our farm. In, okay, Sarah, in, hold on. We, yes. we, we have to get to the bottom of this. Yeah. You, you trained in France. You've cooked at La Tulipe with Jacques Pepin. Would Jacques Pepin ever use old garlic? If that's all he had, yes, he would. No, he wouldn't. Yes, he would. He wouldn't use rancid butter, but he'd use old garlic. <laughs> I don't believe it. I'm calling Jacques Pepin. Okay, you do it. <laughs> I don't believe a word of that. Well, yeah. I want to hear that, but I'm kind of leaning in the school that you can't live without garlic. Good. Um, Thank you, Kathy. Shallots, they're better. No. <sighs> Wrong. I'm fired. <laughs> no, we're both fired. <laughs> Can't disagree with the boss. We're going to have to get a third co-host okay, to mediate well, between us. Kathy, anyway, just I know you'll be fine using a little less of the old garlic, but meanwhile, grow your own. And How don't, exciting. And don't worry about the sprouts. Yes, yeah, I'd say don't it. worry well, about the sprouts. Thank you, because yeah. it is labor. I know. I yeah. used to do that too. Yep. Life's too short. Yep. Yes. Okay. All well, right. thank you for your time. Okay. Love okay. to have you back. Thank you, Kathy. Okay. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye now. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you'd like your cooking question answered, please give us a ring. Our number is one eight five five four bowtie That's 855-426-9843. You can also email us anytime at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? This is Larry from Blackstone, Massachusetts. Hi, Larry. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Where's Blackstone? Blackstone is right on the Rhode Island border with oh. Woonsocket. Yes. Got it. Okay. Got it. How can yep. we help you? Well... My brother-in-law sent me out some grapefruits, 
and I know that there's, you know, like key lime pie and lemon meringue pie, and uh, you use oranges in various ways using their zest and their juice, but I can't ever remember anybody doing something where the grapefruit was the main component other Hmm. than in a fruit salad or something like that. Are you aware of any use of the grapefruit in cooking? I've seen it in salads a lot, particularly paired with well, you mean, fish. You mean the segments? The segments, yeah. But, yeah. He, but he said that he's seen it in salads, but he meant other than that. You mean sort of the rind and all that? Yeah, either using the zest and using the juice to make a component that is strictly the star of the show is the grapefruit. Well, one thing you could do is take, uh, if there's a dessert that uses, let's say, a half a cup of sugar, Take a uh-huh. tablespoon or so of zest, of grapefruit zest, put it with a sugar in a food processor and process for about a minute, and you'll get a flavored sugar. And that actually might be very nice, like paired with something very sweet. Grapefruit curd would be delicious, particularly pink grapefruit curd. You know, like you make lemon right. curd would be wonderful. Right, I've seen, the ruby red. Right. I've yeah. seen grapefruit brulee, you know, where you put sugar on top of it and run it into the broiler, and that's a pretty dynamite contrast. I have a salad with scallops and also with the segments, but I also reduce the grapefruit juice and make a vinaigrette out of it. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, with, again, with the yeah. ruby, just because yeah. it's so pretty. You could do it with the white, but then I add a little bit of rice vinegar, mustard, shallots, and some olive oil, and it really makes a very bright, you know, lovely well, vinaigrette. There's, there's a lot of dressings, like in the old Persia, Iran, where they had a reduced uh, juice with some vinegar and mint and other things. And with grapefruit? Well, you could use grapefruit for yeah. that, and it would be nice as a dressing for a salad, for right. example. Right, right. Yeah. It also would be nice reduced on um, ice cream. Yeah, Ooh, no, I think yeah. I think we all need to explore no, this. No, no, wait, 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 what did you just do to my ice cream? I don't want, I don't want reduced grapefruit <laughs> oh, juice on no, my ice cream. Oh, no, it gets very sweet, just like it did in this uh, vinaigrette that I did. When you reduce Lord. it, no, 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 absolutely Caramel yummy. Caramel sauce, oh, chocolate sauce. No, wonderful. Well, you could do that too, but, you know, refreshing or on lemon sorbet with a grapefruit reduction, you know, I mean... I think there's all sorts of problems. Larry, I think you need to pursue this, frankly. No, it's a good question, and uh, I think you could use it, sure. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the call. Thank you. Yeah, take care. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. This week on Milk Street, it's secrets to better grilling. You know, for years I've cooked over very high heat. That's what grilling is. But it turns out that's a big mistake. It's a big mistake because it's hard to manage the heat. Things overcook or flame up or burn too quickly, and the outside gets overcooked before the inside comes up the temperature. Now, number two, I very often grill over no heat at all. That is, I have all the coals on one side of the grill, or if it's a gas grill, I might heat up the burners on one side and the other. That way, you get a nice, slow, even cooking. It's really great for chicken, for example. Number three, don't soak your wood chips when you want to smoke food. The idea is that wet wood will take longer to ignite and you'll get more smoke. Well, I ran into a guy called Meathead Goldwyn last summer. He said, think about it. What's really happening is you're just getting the water evaporating into steam. You're not getting smoke. In fact, he said, if you think about boats, they're made of wood. They don't absorb water, so don't bother to soak them. Number four, Forget about grill marks, because in between grill marks, you have gray, tasteless meat. So always take a steak, for example, and move it around the grill so the whole thing gets cooked nicely. And number five, some items just keep on cooking when they come off the grill. Tuna, for example, 
it can come up 20, 30 degrees. So when you're finished grilling tuna, take it off and slice it immediately to stop it from cooking. So that's it, five secrets to better grilling. Use low, not high heat. Often cook over indirect heat. Do not soak wood chips. Forget about grill marks. And remember, some items keep on cooking when you take them off the grill. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Here's the question of the day. When is it okay to send food back in a restaurant? Well, Dan Pashman of the Sparkful Podcast is often plagued by such questions. Today, the two of us try to actually provide an answer. Dan Pashman, how are you? Good. How are you, Chris? You know, I've been thinking about this segment we've been doing for some time, and I, I've decided that either you or I are getting free psychotherapy. <laughs> I have the feeling it's me. Well, I will send you a bill. That's good. And uh, it won't be free anymore. <laughs> You're just trying to get me out of my comfort zone. Speaking of comfort zones, what uncomfortable thought do you have for us this week? Well, on this workful podcast lately, we've been debating restaurant etiquette a lot lately. And I wanted to get your take on a couple of these questions of etiquette okay. and ethics. All right. The first question is, when is it okay to send food back in a restaurant? Now, of course, you know, if it's fundamentally, objectively been cooked the wrong way, like if you ordered your steak rare and it comes out well done, then of course you can send it back. But what happens if it is cooked as it was supposed to be cooked and it turns out you just don't really like it? Is it okay then to send it back? Absolutely not. But Chris, what about the uh, old idea that, you know, hospitality, the customer comes first? It, you know, if you're a restaurateur, you want everyone to leave happy. Well, that's that's up to the restaurateur. But I, I, I would say, and I've done this, I would say, you know what? Uh, I really, for whatever reason, I, I really would like to order something else, but I'm happy to pay for it. That's what I say. And then if the restaurant wants to say, no, that's fine, that's that's up to them. But I let that choice reside with the uh, the chef or the manager. Can you define the line for me? Because, I mean, what if something tastes really – it's not just not so much to your liking, but you really think it's just – it's gross. I mean, it's – you can't stand to eat a bite of it. Then is it okay to send it back, even if it was technically cooked properly? Well, it depends. If, if, if it's a function of you ordered something you just don't like because you don't like the something, right? Like <laughs> years ago, I ordered <laughs> Rognon de Veau, right? Uh, at La Grand Wii in the early 1980s. And I thought it was rolled up something. It sounded like rolled up. You know, it's kidneys, of course. Uh, okay. And I hate kidneys. And so I was stuck because I ordered something I hated. It was my fault. If something's very badly prepared, sure. But if it's just because I ordered something that I just don't like that food, I ordered it. So that's uh, that's on me, I think. What would you do? I, I would say that the line is, will you eat it? If this food is so unpleasant to you, that you literally can't eat it, then I think it's okay to send it back and ask for something different. Well, wait, 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 wait. So let's assume you ordered shad roe, okay? Okay. And you didn't really know what it was. And you get this weird thing on your plate and you just really don't like it. Can you send that back? I mean, I, I think if you order something and you don't know what it is, that's kind of on you. Because like, right. why are you going to a restaurant with a, with a server? Like, ask them right. what it is. It's, right. no, there's no shame in asking. But if you order something where you know all the ingredients, you know what you're ordering, but for some reason it just – like you think, oh, this is an interesting preparation. I haven't had this kind of flavor combination before. I'd like to try it. And then it comes out and it just turns out that this flavor combination is repellent to you. I think it's okay to send it back. But if, if you really can't eat it, if you can eat it and just not love it, then I think you should eat it and just not love it. 
Okay, so if you can gag it down, you don't send it back. But otherwise, maybe this is the difference between my generation and yours. Maybe you just are bolder and willing to stand up for your likes and dislikes. My generation maybe has been cowed by the notion of, you know, not making a scene. Maybe that's just, it's a social problem, not, not a food problem. Sure, blame the youth, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, I got another one for you. I got another debate question for okay. you. Ready? Right. There's more and more fast casual restaurants, as the genre is called, which is sort of um, they don't have uh, servers. You go up to a counter and you order, but then you take your food and you go and sit down. And so you get kind of a right. dining experience with kind of a counter experience. It's called a cafeteria experience, yeah. <laughs> Actually, to be specific. Well, the whizzes in the branding department have rebranded it fast okay. casual. Okay. So what comes up oftentimes is let's say that there's a line for the register to order. And then you're going to order, you got to wait for your food, and then you got to try to get a seat, and that's, all the seats are full. At what point in that restaurant scenario is it okay to go and sit down? Like when you get into the line to order, can you send someone from your party to hold a table? Absolutely. No, unless there's someone who's, you know, desperately needs a seat. Absolutely. Yeah. Setting food back, I won't do, but I'll grab a seat from anybody. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that we can kind of extrapolate the view on this question to sort of like the kind of society that we want to live in, Chris. I mean, it sounds like what you're advocating is uh, every man, woman, and child for themselves kind of a society as opposed to a society in which some sort of central authority regulates how resources are allocated in order to ensure the most efficient use. Wait wait a minute. Did you just turn into George Orwell? What happened here? (laughs) Wait a minute. How do we go from fascism (laughs) <laughs> to socialism. I, I don't understand that. Yeah, what I mean, Chris, I, this it seems like a small leap to me, but look, we're talking about you're in a restaurant, there's a finite number of resources, there's only so many seats, and you have a demand for those resources. Now, one option is to say, hey, free market, whoever grabs the seats gets them. That person was more talented at grabbing seats. They wanted it more. They deserve it. And, uh, you know, the free market will, you know, if, if for some reason someone's hogging the seats, then there will be a revolt amongst the people and they'll throw that person out of the seats and, and the dust will settle where it may. Another option is to say that perhaps the restaurant should have a policy. Oh, no, I, you know, no, I agree with that. I, it would be much better if there was policy. It's like standing in line to get on a plane, right? Some airlines have a very strict policy and you know where you stand. You can't cheat, right? And those, and those are the best airlines because everyone knows – how to get on the plane, and there's no problem. I do think in those cases, the restaurant should take control. That would be good. So I, I so, so do you think they should have a person whose job it is to assign the seats? I, I don't know. I, I'm just saying if, if it's chaos, then everyone's free to get a seat unless someone really needs a seat, and then you should give it to them. Uh, if the restaurant wants to create a system where it's clear when you and how you get a seat, that would be better whether it's signage or some other method. I don't think you need to hire a full-time seat manager, but I yeah, see. sure. I, I fall somewhere in the middle. I feel like you don't want to have a free-for-all because then you have people hogging seats that they don't need because if, you're, if, you're, if people are taking up seats and they don't have their food yet, then the system is inefficient because you have right. people who do have food and have nowhere to well, sit, and the people who don't that's have true. food and are taking seats, that's a bad system. But the flip side is that I feel like in practice, any system that a restaurant were to put in place, if they put up a sign saying – don't take your seats until you have your food. Yeah. A lot of people would, would either a lot of people would either not truly not see the sign, 
or they would pretend they didn't see the sign. And then you would feel a deeper sense, those of us who know the rules would feel a deeper sense of injustice than, because now it really feels like a rule has been broken. Dan, can I ask you a personal question? How do you get Please. through the day? I mean, how do you get through the day? You must have hundreds of, di- of moral dilemmas to resolve to get to dinner. I spend a lot of time pondering things. It's true, That's Chris. That's true. Well, maybe yes. you should do that after dinner. It's really, it's, I can tell you that it's an unmitigated joy for those who live closest to me. Dan Passion, we've had two, uh, <laughs> two, two massive moral questions about sending food back and grabbing seats. I don't think we've resolved either of them, but I think you and I disagree on both. Thank you. All right. Well, I'll just assume that means I was right. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> okay. This week, I spoke to Gary Taubes. He's author of The Case Against Sugar. You know, I love history, and most of us know by now that it's folly to invade Russia in winter. But you may not know that Coca-Cola was a medicine before it became a drink. Cola nuts were added for flavor, as well as lots of sugar to disguise the slightly bitter flavor of the nuts. And of course, the British love sweet tea, but their love of tea was mostly about the sweet, not the tea. Sugar was a cheap way for the working population to get extra energy during the day. As George Santayana once said, a nation that does not know its history is doomed to repeat it. That's it for this week. If you're just tuning in and missed us, you can download Milk Street Radio as a podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, also on Spotify, and our brand new website, 177milkstreet.com. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. We'll be back next week. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers, Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer, Amy Padula. Production assistant, Carly Helmetog. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugars. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison, with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help, Debbie Paddock. Theme music by 2Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. PRX.